Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. <laughs> Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 313. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Certainly. Well, I'm not. No, I feel sorry myself. Full of flu, yeah, man flu. Took us by surprise and knocked us off my feet. And I'm getting over it now, but three or four days, man. So things are going a little bit kind of haywire on the planning stage. I was going to bring you like another little section just to give you like an update on sofa notes and everything like that. But honestly, it's just, I just want to go to bed, suck a fisherman's friend and just cuddle up and go to sleep. I am shattered. Yeah, that's a sweet, by the way. <laughs> So what I'm doing, I'm just going to, I, I can't get it, I can't even think straight to be quite honest, I've just got the shivers, the chills and everything, I just want to go to bed. Hey, but you know what I mean, the show's got to go on. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. It is two stories based on the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, that's the theme this week's show. We've got, first coming up is... The main fiction, or one of the main fictions, it is Greener by Josh Roseman. Then we've got a fact article, it is Film Talk by Dennis M. Lane. Then the next part of the main fiction is Always Greener, and that's by Michelle Marquot. So that is today's show. And like I said, there was going to be a little, you know, a little fact article, a little ramble by me about sofa notes. And, you know, the truth is, things are looking really good. I'm getting some kind of Photoshop copies of what the site looked like. The main artwork by Ben Wooten's finisher just came in today. And I just, I'm I just want honestly, on a hot water bottle, I'm freezing cold here. It's sunshine and everything. The house is warm. Everyone's turning turn the heating down so anybody. I just can't get 
Oh, dear. Oh, here we go. Struggle on. First, we'll get in the first main fish with a big sap. Uh, 47. Knocked off by a cold man. First one is the main fiction, and it's Greener by Josh Roseman. Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, lives in Georgia, the state, not the country. His first writing appeared in Asimov's, and I remember when that kind of happened, he was just over the moon, Josh, it was just an amazing time. Escape Pod and the cross-genres anthology Fat Girl in a Strange Land. His fiction has been reprinted by the June Steve Audio Fiction Magazine and Starships Over. His voice has been heard on two escape artists and all of the District of Wonders podcast. He is a 2000s graduate of the Towers Toolbox Writing Workshop. Now, I don't know if I pronounced that right. When not writing, he mostly complains about the fact he's not writing. You can visit Josh at roseplusman at dot com or follow him at Twitter at listener42. There you go. This story is narrated by Peter Piazza. Now, Peter's done some cracking narrations for us as well. And I've seen that kind of some reason or where they lost touch, but this is a great narration from Peter. Just lovely, you know what I mean? Just forget yourself and just listen to this, this fantastic story. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Greener by Josh Roseman. Read for Starship Sofa by Peter Piazza. The apartment is silent. Naomi and the kids are gone. Eight years. Two contract renewals. And we decided to end things. Or more accurately, I decided it was time to let the contract lapse. I really thought Naomi would take it better, but I was wrong. I thought she would be able to overcome her old-fashioned upbringing her parents with their lifetime contracts and their for-better-or-for-worse mentality. But when I told her I wouldn't be renewing for another four years, she hit me. She actually punched me, so hard that I stumbled, falling onto the floor and cracking my head against the refrigerator. I don't think much was said after that. I slept on the sofa, and when I got to work the next day, my message telltale was blinking. I found a simple terse note from her on my screen. I'm bringing the kids to my parents. I'll get my stuff out next week. My attorney will contact you about custody arrangements. A few lines below that. You prick. That had been three weeks ago. Sari steps in behind me and the door slides shut behind us. Her hands go to my shoulders, then slide down my arms. I turn to her. See her dark face half-lit by the city lights coming through the open window. Her eyes are wide. She's smiling. I lean in to kiss her, but she stops me, puts one finger on my chest. No, Scott, she says in her lilting accent. You must test first. I roll my eyes. I don't think she can see it, not with a light behind me, and step into the kitchen. The junk drawer, or Naomi called it that, it is mostly tidy now, just a couple of data drives, and the small white box. I set it on the counter and open the top. Blue lights flicker as it cycles up, and an oval area glows yellow. I'll go first, I say, pressing my index finger to the yellow light. There's a tiny pinch and a beep. The machine has a drop of my blood. While the small square readout shows a pattern of pretty lights, I take out an alcohol swab, and run it over the testing pad. 
I'm sure I'm clean, and I'm just as sure that Sari's not going to want to test if I haven't cleaned up after myself. Another beep. We both look down at the readout. Sari close enough that I can smell the delicate citrus scent of her perfume, feel her bare arm brush the sleeve of my shirt. In small capital letters it says, No known socially transmitted diseases. No known contagious pathogens. Biocontrol implant active through 12-17-78. Thank you for using Pfizer. Despite knowing I'm clear, I still let out a soft breath. I must have touched at least 20 people in passing between leaving the bar and getting to the apartment. Who knows what I could have picked up? Very good, Sari says. She reaches past me and presses her index finger to the yellow oval. Her hand brushes mine as she does, and I'm sure it's intentional. The machine thinks taking longer than it did with me, and the readout is a little more ambiguous. No known socially transmitted diseases. No known contagious pathogens. Antigens present for influenza strain 602-A. No danger of infection. Biocontrol implant active through 030579. Thank you for using Pfizer. 602-A, I ask. What does that mean? I see Sari's shrug. My eyes have adjusted to the lack of light. I was ill a month ago, she tells me. I received medication and did not miss any time at work. I was told 602A causes at best a tendency to sneeze when it reacts with vaccinations. She smiles and touches my arm, fingers gentle through my shirt. My test is clear. Your test is clear. Her message is clear. I put my arms around her, hands on her lower back above her hips, and this time I do kiss her. Even though we're both clean, Sari insists that I fabricate a physical barrier. It's been ten years since I've been with anyone except Naomi, and I've almost forgotten how to put it on. Sari waits patiently, slim and dark, a smooth statue reclining in our bed. My bed now. Naomi didn't take it or any of our furniture with her. And smiling. I finally get it in place and kneel between her legs, then lean forward. But again, that finger on my chest. What is it? I ask, impatient. You must obtain my consent? She says it with a smile, and I'm sure she won't say no. But she's right. She has to explicitly voice her consent, or this could be considered forced. And I must obtain yours. I try to laugh, but... It comes out tight and uncomfortable. I consent to sexual relations with you, Sarikadam. Her hands come up to my face, cool on my cheeks. Her thumbs stroke my cheekbones. I consent to sexual relations with you, Scott Everett. Sex with Sari, though, is a disaster. It's been so long since I've been physical with anyone except Naomi that I can't satisfy Sari, not even a little. When it's over, she gathers her clothes and walks out of the apartment. Naomi would never walk out after sex, no matter how bad it was. But maybe it was just Sari. At least that's what I hope. So I try again. 
Neither Anne nor Kelly asks me to wear a barrier, though both want me to test. And both are clean. It doesn't work out with either of them, though. Anne turns out to be a mistake, desperate and, and clinging. And Kelly makes it clear she just wants me for the night. After that, I'm jaded to the whole thing, though I go out with Brian and Daniel after work on Friday anyway. We get a few drinks before Brian suggests a negotiable entertainment venue. I don't really want to go in. Definitely don't want to pay $50 just to walk through the door. But he promises there's someone here I'll want to meet. Her name is Tina. She's very nice. She ought to be, since I have to pay her just to sit and talk with me. She's wearing too much perfume, and like every other employee, male or female, that's all she's wearing. Places like this, the management wants it clear to everyone what they're negotiating on. When I was younger, I might have been distracted, but Naomi preferred nudity when it was just the two of us, and after getting the requisite look, I find it easier to ignore the fact that Tina is naked. If you're so unhappy about being here, Tina says in a flat, broad, Midwestern drawl, why'd you come? I shrug. Brian said I'd like you. Tina grins. Brian's a pervert. Pay me enough and I'll tell you just what it is he likes about me. I'm fine, thanks, I say, making a face. She laughs. It's a prettier sound than her voice and scoots closer to me. Her hand falls to my right thigh, as if by accident. So how did you... Uh, I pause. My calm is vibrating in my pocket. I take it out and Naomi's picture is on the screen. I'd caught her mid-laugh, carefree, beautiful. Sorry, Tina, I, I have to take this. She nods, and as I get up, it's as if she shuts down, going from affable, available girl to some sort of switched-off machinery. I touch the connect key and hold the comm to my ear. Hi, Naomi, I say. Just making sure you'll be at the apartment tomorrow when I drop off the kids. The old sharpness is back in her voice, and despite the picture on my comm, I remember why I didn't renew the contract. I'll be there, I say. I'm just out for drinks. She makes a sniffing noise. Not my business, she says. I'll drop them off at nine, like we agreed. Naomi clicks off before I can say goodbye. I plop back onto the bench, and Tina comes alive again, pressing up against me. Her arm goes around my shoulders. Everything okay? I nod just once. <laughs> Former wife, I tell her. Every time we talk, she's just so... I make a hard and pleasant sound, and Tina smiles. What's so funny? She strokes my cheek. I, I know the gesture is practiced and, and professional, but it still feels good. Reassuring. There's no need to keep it all in, she says. We can talk about it and about what you want to do to make it go away. What? Tina reaches out to the table in front of us and touches a pale blue oval with her forefinger. A screen part of the table, but so dark I didn't notice it before now, lights up, and a menu appears. Let me help you, she says, her voice soft. I can take her off your mind. I promise. We test at the venue. I come back clean, but 
Tina has antigens for herpes simplex. Hell, half a country has that. At least Tina's had it treated. She meets me outside, gets into my car wearing jeans and a sleeveless blue blouse. As I drive her back to my apartment, I notice just how blonde her hair is, how curly it is. But plenty of women have curly blonde hair. I offer her coffee when we get inside, but she declines. Let me take you to bed, she says, coming close, looking up at me with pale blue eyes. Let me help you forget about her. Naomi. Naomi, she repeats. I let her take my hand, let her lead me to the bedroom. She undresses me expertly and guides me to sit on the edge of the bed. Her clothes come off just as quickly, and soon enough, she's kneeling in front of me, doing exactly what we negotiated. It feels amazing, but but not like when Naomi did it. I can look down at Tina, watch her hair shift, hear the soft sounds, but I, I can't let go. I try, but I can't. And I know it's because she's not Naomi. Afterward, I return the favor. Tina doesn't taste like Naomi. She's, she's bitter, sharper. Later, when she's on top of me, her body is so much like Naomi's. It shines the same in the bedroom light and moves the same as she moves above me. But I can't lose myself inside her. She's not Naomi. Before Tina can get dressed, I negotiate with her to stay the night and be with me again in the morning. I fabricate a toothbrush for her, and we use the side-by-side sinks in the bathroom, both naked, just like Naomi and I used to do before bed each night. I can't stop myself, and as Tina rinses her mouth, I come up behind her and hug her, burying my face in her hair. I almost don't care that it smells different. If I try hard enough, I almost believe that I can catch the scent that is uniquely Naomi. But I can't, not really. We go back to the bedroom and snuggle together under the comforter. And before I realize who I'm with, I'm kissing Tina tenderly on the lips, wishing her good night. She smiles at my embarrassment, but she's being paid enough not to say anything. Tina and I are having breakfast when the door chime rings. I open it, and I'm nearly taken off my feet when Cher and Bobby barrel into me, hugging me as hard as they can. I extricate myself, enough to get to my knees so that I can hug them properly. Hi, I say, kissing their cheeks. I missed you. Missed you too, Daddy, Cher says. She's older, nine, and thinks she should speak for Bobby, who's only six. Can we live here again? Can't, Bobby says. Mom said. I look past them, Naomi standing in the doorway. She has a faraway look in her eyes, and I realize that she can see into the kitchen. She can see Tina. Hey, go on in the entertainment room, I tell them. Uh, Let me talk to Mom for a minute. Okay, Cher says. She looks back at Naomi. Bye, Mom. Naomi just keeps looking at Tina. I get up and guide Naomi into the hall, letting the door close behind us. She punches me again. My teeth clack together and I bump the wall, but this time as she comes in for a second blow, I catch her fist. We were together so long that she can't help telegraphing what's coming next, and I take her knee on the side of my thigh. 
It puts her off balance, and she staggers back a bit. You prick! She snaps. If you wanted me, why didn't you stay with me? I blink back tears, my jaws throbbing fiercely. You drove me crazy, Naomi, I say softly. I think I taste blood and I swallow. I loved you. I I do love you. But you drove me crazy. Nothing I ever did was good enough for you, and you never let anything pass without fighting me on it. How can you expect me to renew with you after that? How can you? That woman. She's almost sputtering, her pale cheeks going bright red with anger, and I can't help it. I grab her and push her up against the wall, press my mouth to hers, kiss her hard, the way we always used to. She kisses me back for a moment, then shoves me away and smears her mouth against her sleeve. Damn it, Scott! How do I know you're clean? How do I know that she didn't give you something? We tested, I say, but the look on Naomi's face tells me any answer would have been a wrong one. Damn it, Naomi, we're not under contract anymore. I'm free to do what I want. Naomi folds her arms under her breasts. Then why pick a woman who looks so much like me? I don't have an answer for that. And we just stare at each other for a minute before Naomi lets out a long sigh. Take them to school Monday. I'll pick them up there. She turns to go, but I can't let her. Naomi, I say, wait, please. She stops walking but doesn't turn around. Naomi, I'm sorry. I miss you. I just... I mean, I... I can't... I'll see you in a month, Scott, she says still facing away. I watch her walk down the corridor, turn the corner to the lift, and have no choice but to go back inside. The kids and I have a fun day together. I suppose I'm overcompensating, but I let them decide what to do and end up spending five straight hours at the theater. There are worse things than animated animals and robots running around doing silly things, and anyway, it makes them laugh. Then we get dinner and go up to the skywalk, something Naomi never lets them do, despite how safe it is. And even though it's perfectly safe, I let Cher hold my hand so tightly that it makes my fingers hurt. Bobby doesn't care. He's going from left to right, looking out over the city. The skywalk is ten stories up, connecting the Bank of America building with the Faneuil Hall marketplace. The sun goes down early this time of year, and the city lights are bright all around us. Halfway across the bridge, there's a little sitting area with a couple of metal mesh tables and benches, all bolted down. Cher and I sit down, and I give Bobby my card, so he can use the pay to view binoculars. Cher is still holding my hand, but her grip's loosened a bit. We didn't have to come, I say after a minute. If you don't like heights, I mean... No, she says quickly. I mean, yes, I don't, but it's only fair... Bobby sat through my princess movie. I don't let her see my smile, and I don't tell her that he was playing Ben Brady football on my comm the whole time. I guess you're right, I tell her. But I know my kids, and I know that's not what's really on her mind. I also know that I can wait her out. It doesn't take long. Daddy, why didn't you and Mom stay together? I have a pat answer ready. I've had one for each of them since it happened. But it seems stupid now. All my reasons, all my excuses, and 
none of it feels right. I wish I knew, I say. I love your mom. I still love your mom. I swallow hard. There's an unexpected lump in my throat. And I miss her. And I miss you guys. But we just, it, it wasn't working, Cher. It, it just wasn't. Did you stop having sex? I cough loudly, inadvertently pulling my hand away from Cher's. What? She makes a face. Come on, Daddy. It's just what adults do when they love each other. You and Mom love each other, so if you stopped having sex, maybe you don't love each other anymore. Her voice is resolute, but the skin around her eyes is tight, and she's folded her hands in her lap. I put my arm around Cher's shoulders and pull her close. We didn't stop having sex. I can't believe I'm talking about this with my nine-year-old daughter. Cher, if, if there was anything wrong with your mom and me, it wasn't that. So what was it? She's looking up at me now, eyes glistening. Tears halfway down her left cheek and I brush it away. Why can't you be together? I don't have an answer and... Even if I wanted to think of one, Bobby's bounding back, still full of energy, my card in his hand. Cher pushes away as, as if I was hugging her and she didn't want me to and, and gets up. I take my card back from Bobby. Ice cream? Sure. Great. We can get it when we get off the tea. I hold out my hand to Cher, but she doesn't take it. I shrug and start to walk, Cher a step ahead and just out of reach. Bobby's still zipping back and forth, seeing as much as he can. At the marketplace, we take the elevator down. Both Bobby and Cher look out the transparent windows, but all I can remember is the last time I was in this elevator. Naomi and I bundled in coats and scarves, but still pressed together, kissing, not caring who was watching. As good as tonight is with the kids, that night was so much better. I miss those nights. I miss her. I have to carry Bobby into his room. Cher just needs a gentle touch on the shoulder to be woken up and urged to go to hers. I make a half-hearted attempt to clean up the living room. Popcorn dropped on the couch and the floor, wet rings of condensation on the coffee table. But stop when I find Cher's calm sticking out of her jacket pocket. The telltale is glowing purple. A video message. It's probably an invasion of privacy, even though she's my daughter. But I play it anyway, just out of curiosity. Naomi's face appears on the screen, and I suddenly can't stand up anymore. I half drop, half fall onto the couch, holding the little screen in front of me. Hi, baby. Just wanted to wish you good night and sweet dreams, and to tell you I love you. Her voice is tender, soft, and sweet, the way it is whenever she has to put a bandage on a cut or explain why bad things sometimes happen. My chest gets tight again. I hope you're having a good time with your dad and that you're behaving and taking care of your little brother. She's smiling, but there's tension around her lips and in her neck. She runs one hand through her thick hair. I miss you, baby. I can't wait to see you Monday. A pause just the side of too long. Love you, Cher. Call me if you need anything. Anything, she repeats. The video stops on the last frame, 
Naomi's face, and the menu comes up. I select Keep as New and tuck the com back into Cher's jacket pocket. But it's only two minutes later that I've got it in my hand and am listening to Naomi say, I miss you, baby. This time I forward the message to my own com before putting Cher's away. Then I get up and take my com into my bedroom, securing the door behind me. I undress and climb into bed. It still smells like sex and Tina's perfume. And hold the calm in front of my face. Hi, baby, Naomi's recorded voice says. Just wanted to wish you a good night. After I drop the kids off at school Monday, I call in sick to work, and as I ride the T back to the stop near my apartment, I send a message to Tina. She responds almost immediately, and an hour later... We're on the couch in my living room, her bare feet in my lap, a news channel running on the screen, the sound off. I miss this, I say. I imagine so. She moves her heel a little, but I don't respond the way I think she expected me to. What's the matter, Scott? I sigh and lean my head back on the couch cushions, my eyes closing. I've just been lonely, I guess. I mean... I've been out a few times and even had sex, but it's not the same. Scott, she says softly, slowly, what exactly am I doing here? My hand closes around her right ankle. I just, I find myself sniffing. I miss you. I want you back with me. She yanks her foot away, and I open my eyes to see her getting up from the couch. I think that's quite enough, she tells me. She pulls her calm out of her pocket and does something to it. I hear mine ping softly. There, that's everything you paid me today. But no buts, she says. I stand up, but she's already almost to my front door. Scott, I'm not your ex-wife. Her tone is not ungentle. I might look a little like her, but I'm not. If you want her back, you have to talk to her, not to me. I shake my head slightly. Tina's right. She she doesn't look like Naomi. Not really. All right, fine. Go. I turn away, but I don't hear the door open. I feel Tina's hand touch my shoulder, and I turn around. She cups my cheek and smiles. You're a good person, Scott. I'm sure the two of you can work things out. I hope so. It's more of a whisper than anything else. Tina steps away, her touch lingering, long after she's gone from the apartment. I can still feel it as I pull out my calm and watch the message from Naomi, the message I edited down at midnight once I had the content memorized. As I listen, it almost feels like Naomi had just said goodbye for the day. Hi, baby. Just wanted to tell you I love you. I love you too, I say. I really do. I watch the message over and over for most of the day. On Tuesday, I go into work, but everyone in the office notices that something's up. What about Tina? Brian asks as we sit in the break room nursing coffee. Wasn't she great? She was fine, I say, noncommittal. Nice girl. 
Did she do that thing? His left eyebrow goes up, and he makes a gesture that can't be misinterpreted. I told her she should, that you really needed it. I don't answer. Fine. At least I tried. He leaves the break room, mug in hand. I've been cupping my own in both palms, ignoring the heat seeping through the ceramic and into my skin. I spend the rest of the day at my desk, skipping lunch, earpiece tuned to my calm, listening to Naomi's message. Every chance I get, I load up pictures of her and flip through them on my screen. For every harsh word, there's Naomi, wind whipping her hair into a curly mess, sitting on the seawall at Martha's Vineyard. For every snide remark, there's Naomi, smiling longingly at the camera, chin resting on a hammock made of her fingers. For every pointless argument that she insisted on winning, there's Naomi, nude and beautiful, posing for me in our bed. For everything she did to hurt me, she did just as much to make me love her. How could I have ever said goodbye to this woman? I'm still at my desk at seven, long after everyone else has gone home. I put my comm into the dock on my desk and select the Medfield address that connects me to Naomi's parents. Her mother, the same face, the same hair, but done in gray-streaked brown, answers my call, folding her arms. What is it, Scott? Hello, Joanna, I say. Is Naomi available? Even if she was, I don't think she wants to talk to you. Fine, but I still want to talk to her. Can can you... I trail off. Something Naomi's mother said sinks in. Why wouldn't she be available? It's a school night. What, what about Bobby and Cher? They're fine, Joanna says. Their grandfather is helping them with their homework. Well, that's good. Naomi's father is a biologist, one of the smartest people I know. Where's Naomi? Joanna's lips press together tightly, and she exhales slowly through her nose. I stare intently at the screen, and finally Joanna tells me. She's gone out. A date. I feel my fingers go cold, a fist clenching around my heart. A, a date? Joanna nods. W with whom? She didn't say, and it's none of my business. Or yours, she adds. Or don't you remember that you didn't renew the contract, the one you insisted on, instead of marriage? When you said no, you gave up the right to ask after Naomi. Joanna's finger comes close to the screen to disconnect me. Wait, I say, my voice dull. Please. Her hand moves away. I'm thankful. Naomi's father wouldn't have waited. What is it? I... My mouth is suddenly dry. I swallow hard, run my tongue over my teeth and try again. I made a mistake. The sound of the words, the trembling near whisper, the first time I actually say it out loud. It all runs together and I find myself crying. I choke back a sob. I should have renewed Joanna. I have to force the words out. I miss Naomi. I miss the kids. I... I just... I managed to take a couple of breaths. Please, Joanna. If I call her, she won't answer. Can you 
help me. I just want to talk to her. Joanna's silent for a long moment. I know you have her comm address. For the kids. She appears to make a decision. Here. Both hands move toward the video pickup, and I hear the soft clicking of keys. My comm pings a second later. Her emergency code. Thank you. Don't thank me, Joanna says quickly. She's furious with you. A long pause, as if she's not sure what she wants to say. Next. But you're better as a family. Her expression is more sad than anything else. Fix this, Scott, and don't screw it up next time. I won't help you again. She stabs her finger at the screen. Her face blinks out, replaced by a call summary. I touch the keys on the dock and bring up my messages. There it is. Naomi's emergency code. They can be bypassed, but Naomi's not that technical. I am. Instead of calling her, though, I type the code into AC&C's locator program. Her location comes up less than ten seconds later along with a map and directions. I don't need either. I was just there. The Skywalk I pass my card over the reader and step through a little plastic turnstile at the fanual end of the Skywalk. A group of what looks like college students hold the elevator for me. When we get to the top, they stroll out, and I angle around them. According to my comm, which has been tracking Naomi's location since I left the office, she's at the midpoint of the Skywalk. Maybe she's even sitting at the same table where Sharon and I sat a few nights ago. I zip up my jacket and begin walking, wondering how I'm going to explain to Naomi's date why I tracked her down. Turns out that's not even necessary. Naomi's standing at the railing, looking outward. There's a gentle breeze. Her curly hair flutters a little, as does the tail of her shirt where it peeks out from below a dark green cashmere sweater. I stand next to her. Hi, Naomi. She turns her head, her face is hard, her eyes sharp. What are you doing here, Scott? I thought you were on a date, I say. That's not an answer, she snaps. But she immediately looks to regret it. I know that expression. He invited me to his apartment, but when I told him I wasn't planning to sleep with him, he got pissed off and left. I'm sorry. No, you're not. She actually half smiles. But then you had that woman in the house when I dropped off the kids. The smile's frozen on her face as she realizes what she said. Did you sleep with her? Well, there's no right answer here. Best not to lie. Yes, I say. There's regret in my voice that I didn't expect. I... I was lonely. We negotiated. Naomi makes a face. That's disgusting. I shake my head. I shouldn't have, but we tested first. We were clear. I try to keep any inflection out of my words, but I know I sound a little bitter. It's been almost a month. I haven't been alone since we moved in together. I was lonely, Naomi, and I missed you. I could tell. Her hand is cold when she puts it over mine. Scott, what happened to us? We used to be so happy. I look at her. Her pale eyes are shiny. I don't know, Naomi, but I know this. I'm not ever going to be happy again.
unless I'm with you. She laughs, that incredulous sound that means she doesn't know how to react. And then she's grabbing me, hugging me tighter than she ever has, almost knocking me off balance as she pulls my head down and and kisses me like she did when I proposed the contract. My arms go around her, and I squeeze her right back until she coughs into my mouth and I realize I'm holding on too tightly. Come on, she says, her chin trembling. Take me home. We hold hands all the way to the elevator, and, and once inside, she presses against me, like she did that night in the elevator all those months ago. I put my arms around her waist and pull her close. Hold on, Naomi says between kisses. I've pulled her sweater off and shoved up her blouse to get at her bare stomach, but her hand is on my shoulder. Scott, wait! I bury my face in her stomach, breathing in the scent of her, heart pounding. What is it? I have to... She swallows, but doesn't continue, just pulls away and goes into the kitchen. I follow, shrugging off my jacket and tossing it on a chair. She goes straight to the junk drawer and takes out the tester, and the pounding in my chest stops for a few seconds. I can only watch, dumbfounded, as she opens the little white box and powers it up, and then presses her left middle finger to the yellow oval. We wait. It beeps. She reads the screen, which I can't see. And the color in her cheeks drains away. Naomi? I sound small. Scared. She passes the tester to me, and I can tell she couldn't speak if she wanted to. DRHIV type. Two markers detected. Please contact your personal health representative immediately. Biocontrol implant active through 05 2880. Thank you for using Pfizer. I put it down on the counter. Naomi, what? How did this happen? There are tears in her eyes again. This time she can't stop them. She reaches for me, but I step back. She stumbles and catches herself on the edge of the counter, going to her knees. Her hands readjust her clothes, seemingly without thinking about it. It was the night after I left, she says softly, not looking up. A couple of friends tried to cheer me up. I got really, really drunk. Oh, Naomi. She doesn't drink. She barely touched her champagne at our contracting ceremony. I kneel but stay out of reach. Naomi, what happened to you? Now she tilts her chin up. Tear tracks shine on her pale, perfect face. This guy, he was nice to me. He listened. He said he'd drive me home, and I left. I guess I forgot about Maria and Gwen because they gave it to me good at work the next day, even though I was hungover. Naomi, I say, what aren't you telling me? She buries her face in her hands and starts to sob, and I can't help it anymore. I go to her, put my arm around her shoulders, and let her cry against me. Naomi, I don't care what it was. I'm not mad. I just... I have to know. She's muffled, but I still understand her. I told him I wanted to test, but he said he was clean and he already had his hand under my dress and I didn't push it. 
God, Scott, I didn't make him do it. And now look at me. I grab her shoulder suddenly and she stares at me, shocked. I am Naomi, I say. This isn't the end of the world. We just, we need to get you treated. Use barriers. We, we, we can, but I can't finish. I break down. We kneel together on the kitchen floor and we cry. Naomi and I both call out sick from work on Wednesday and I take her to our PHR. He does more extensive testing, and it turns out the markers are left over from where her body fought the virus to a standstill. Your vaccine, he tells us, sitting on a stool in the exam room, it protected you from the effects of the disease, just like it's supposed to. You'll be fine, Naomi. But drug-resistant HIV is still dangerous to others. What does that mean? She's holding my hand. I, I feel her pulse racing. What about Scott, my kids? He shakes his head slightly. You'll never be able to donate blood or tissue. And if you ever cut yourself, you need to make sure no one touches the blood, just in case. We'll need to give Sharon and Bobby extra boosters, but they should be all right. Naomi sighs, relieved, but there's something missing. I stare at the man until he gets up and leans against the counter. I'm sorry, Scott. We can protect your kids because... They share your wife's DNA. But the two of you aren't blood relations. What does that mean, I ask? You can't have unprotected sex with Naomi. If you do, you're likely to contract the disease yourself. I blink slowly, then nod. HIV was beaten for a few years back in the tens, but it came back, overcame the treatments and the vaccines. Scientists managed to stave it off and created a new vaccine about 30 years ago. But while I was in college, it mutated, and the new version is tougher than ever. How could Naomi let herself catch this? I turn to her, anger hot in the pit of my stomach, but then I see her face, her tears, her absolute misery, and it melts away. I just got her back, and now she needs me more than ever. At first we manage. After the initial shock wears off, everything is perfect. We manage to avoid arguments for a couple of months just by staying out of each other's way. But that's not a perfect solution. And half a year later, we're at each other's throats again. Same as always. And Cher and Bobby are in their rooms to escape my shouting and Naomi's deadly quiet words. It's not the first time I wonder if I made a mistake in reuniting with Naomi. But it's the first time I say it out loud. I should have left you then, I snarl, pacing back and forth in the kitchen. I should have told you to get the hell out of my house. Maybe so, she says, barely audible, just like every other time we fight. But you'd be a mess. Oh, screw you. Maybe, she says again. But I know you, Scott, and I know me. We can't live without each other, so let's just get over this. She falters and I fight the urge to finish her sentence, something that would fuel the fire even more. Damn it, Scott. What the hell were we even fighting about? I turn away without a word and walk quietly down the hall to our bedroom. The door closes behind me. I want to scream, to kick something, 
to go back out there and remind Naomi in explicit detail exactly what she said that set this off. But I don't. I just stand there in the center of the room, eyes closed, forcing myself to calm down. This has to stop. Naomi comes in an hour later, touching the lock control as she does. The kids are okay, she tells me as she undresses. I'm already in bed, calm in hand, reading. Bobby's fine, but Cher... She takes a deep breath. Scott, Cher was bawling. She was afraid we'd separate again. I open my mouth, but she holds up a hand. I told her it wouldn't happen, no matter what. And I put her to bed. But you're going to have to talk to her. I will, I promise. Naomi pulls her nightgown over her head and slides into bed beside me. Scott, she says, we have to stop this. It's not healthy. I put the reader on my nightstand and turn to her. I know, Naomi. I really do, but... Oh, hell, I have to tell her. Naomi, you push every single one of my buttons. You drive me crazy. You piss me off at every turn, and it's all I can do to scream at you instead of going off and breaking something. So why do you stay? Her eyes shine. We don't have a contract anymore. You can leave whenever you like. Because I love you. I reach for Naomi and my hand finds her thigh. I sound plaintive, pleading with her to understand. I love you, and I want us to be together. Naomi smiles. I move my hand to her cheek. Her face is as soft as ever. I love you too, Scott. She holds me by the wrists, kisses my palm. I feel tears in my fingers. I never said it before, she says. But I'm sorry. I shake my head. It happened. It's in the past. I move closer to her, my lips nearly touching hers. Be with me, Naomi. Now. Forever. She nods and kisses me. When we separate, her cheeks are pink, her lips parted. She reaches for the barriers on the bedside table, but I grab her arm. No. Scott, you know what the PHR said. I don't care anymore. I nudge her legs apart with my knee. I want you, Naomi. I'm close enough now to feel her heat, all of you, no matter what. She wrenches out of my grip and pushes at my chest. I can't let you, Scott. I can't infect you. I take her wrists in my hands. Her pulse is burred quick under my thumbs. I love you, Naomi. She tries to protest, but I kiss her, and after a few seconds, she stops fighting. I have to prove to Naomi that I want her, and only her, for the rest of my life. I don't care about the disease anymore. I can live with it, but I can't live without Naomi. I've tried, but the grass isn't any greener on that side. After the kiss, Naomi doesn't try to stop me again. Her back arches just like always, but a tear trails down the side of her face. She doesn't have to tell me why she's crying. And I don't have to ask. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Josh's Josh. Thank you so much for that. 
And Peter, what a star, what a narration. Lovely, thank you so much. Next up is a fact article, and it's by our very own Dennis Emily. Dennis Squire. A review from the Jacaranda City. This week, I had the lawnmower in pieces on the workshop floor. While trying to make sense of the jumble of parts, I got to thinking about the 1955 film, This Island Earth. The movie follows nuclear scientist and jet pilot Dr. Cal Meacham, who is given the designs and component parts of a strange machine, which he builds. Passing the test, he is taken to a secret lab by a remote-controlled aircraft, operated by a strange man called Essex, who looks like Henry Spence from Eraserhead, with an added forehead extension. Meacham is to help develop a way of synthesising uranium. However, he and Dr. Ruth Adams are kidnapped while the other scientists are killed and the lab blown up and taken to the planet Metaluna. There they learn that Metaluna is in the process of being destroyed by the Zargon, who are using thousands of meteors to attack the planet. The two humans discover that the plan is to relocate the inhabitants of Metaluna to Earth, where, according to Exeter, we hope to live in harmony with the citizens of your Earth. But their leader says... Our knowledge and weapons would make us your superiors, naturally. Causing Meacham to retort, Then why haven't your superior brains solved the problem of synthesizing uranium? To cut a long story short, Exeter helps the humans escape back to Earth, but is fatally wounded by a hypercephalic mutant with crab claws for hands. They get away from the exploding Metaluna, and Exeter drops their two-seater plane off before crashing into the ocean. Starring Rex Reason as Dr. Cal Meacham, and no, that name wasn't the result of some studio executive's third lunchtime martini, he was born with it. Reason was a contract player with Universal International, but moved more into TV work. Then, in the early 60s, he pretty much retired from acting after starring for two years in the Roaring Twenties. He was more known for his handsome presence and deep voice, and to me, he always comes across as a young Stuart Granger. The movie's female lead, Dr. Ruth Adams, was played by Faith Domague, although Hyacinth Bucket-like, she insisted that it should be pronounced Damieux. 1955 was a good year for her. She also starred in the giant octopus movie, It Came From Beneath the Sea, and The Atomic Man, the time-slip tale of a scientist living seven and a half seconds ahead of the rest of the world. In 1965, she starred in the strange movie Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, a film that was executive produced by Roger Corman and filmed in the Soviet Union. Then it was released in the US with phony credits to hide that fact. By the way, it shouldn't surprise anyone that... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The 87-year-old Corman has been announced as the producer-director of next year's Sharktopus vs. Mamantula. The leader of the aliens on Earth, Essex, was played by Jeff Morrow. Another actor, more known for his TV roles from the 50s to the 80s. Although, in 1956, he did star in the third Creature from the Black Lagoon movie, The Creature Walks Among Us. The film had two directors. First of all, Joseph M. Newman, whose main genre output seems to have been four episodes of The Twilight Zone in 1963 and 4. Universal weren't happy with some of his work on the movie, and so they brought in Jack Arnold who directed Creature from the Black Lagoon in 54, Tarantula in 55, and The Incredible Shrinking Man in 57. He reshot the Metaluna scenes. You can definitely see the difference in approach. The Newman sections are pretty standard for a 1950s paranoia movie. But when we come to the Arnold scenes, the movie really livens up, with meteors crashing into Metaluna, the last redoubt below the surface, and the arrow-shaped Zargon attack ships. The screenplay was by Franklin Cohen and Edward G. O'Callaghan and was based on the story The Alien Machine by Raymond F. Jones, which appeared in Thrilling Wonder Stories magazine. The movie won the Golden Reel Award for the best sound editing in a feature film, although the high-pitched whine when the planes are taken over made my wife leave the room, but then she swears that she can hear dog whistles. In 1956... A sequel, entitled Aliens in the Skies, went into pre-production. Rex Reason and Faith Damieux were to reprise the roles, but the project was shelved as the studio considered the proposed budget to be too high. Overall, I would say that This Island Earth is well worth a look, and, as it was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best DVD Classic Film Release, it looks beautiful. Now, I really do have to get back to the lawnmower, it won't assemble itself. Dennis Squire, what can I say? And something special coming as well for Sofa Note members with Dennis. So look out for that. And I will tell you all about it. But like you say, I'm ploughing on. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Next up is a second main fiction entitled Always Greener by Michelle Marquot. I'll give you a little heads up about Michelle. Michelle lives in the Blue Mountains with her husband and two children and works as a veterinarian. She is the author of the novel Blue Silence by Random House in 2002 and a number of short stories. She was the co-editor with Bill Congreve for the year's best Australian science fiction and fantasy volumes 1 to 4 from Mirror Dance Books. Now, this narration is, well, you know what I mean? I just, that's, why, oh, that's why I love this show, you know what I mean? This narration is just fantastic as well. It's by Iba Amakas. Iba has done a couple of narrations for Starship so far, but I'll read out her bio as well. And like I say, if you remember, I'm now putting the whole kind of bios on there, links and bios and everything. So please, you know, if you want to come over to the front of the website, you know, that'll be great. 
Ibba is an emerging filmmaker from Seattle. She was raised by historical sword fighters, and despite their protests for martial and historical accuracy, the experience forever tied her to fantasy science fiction genre. She's had a script at the Austin Film Festival and in 2012 won the Jeff Arch Screenwriting Award. She's currently in post-production of her first feature film, a dark fantasy set in the Pacific Northwest. Go on there, Ibba. Man, so good, that, yes. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Always Greener by Michelle Marquardt. They're ugly, I said squinting at the aliens over the interweaving mesh of grass. Why did they have to put them here? Mark looked at me sideways. It was cramped on our side-by-side squashing boards, and we were standing hip against hip, the dense wall of grass around us. I could feel the calculation in his gaze. He wanted to argue with me, but was unwilling to risk another bout of shouting that would end in tears. I didn't think that would happen today, but my grief was an unpredictable thing, and he was right to be wary of it. In the end, he just shrugged, reached out with a gloved hand, and pushed aside more blades to get a better view. I don't think the council is anywhere else they could put them. The grass makes a better prison than anything we've got in town. And who'd want them there anyway? The truce finishes in four days. One of their ships will come and get them before then. Better that happens out here, with nobody about. Nobody except us. I stared at the two figures as they moved slowly over the expanse of open, rocky ground. Their three short, fat legs inched their massive bodies along, while their varied arms balanced the building materials above their tiny, swiveling heads. They were pulling apart the last skeletal remains of the hut that had once stood at the highest point of the field, though there was no sign of what they'd done with any of the pieces. They're stupid, too, I said. That hut was the only shelter they've got. What if we get early snow? Mark didn't point out that the few remaining uprights of the old hut would have provided little protection anyway. Maybe they don't care about snow. Maybe engineers are designed to be weatherproof. It didn't make sense. Maybe they'll just freeze. I waited for a twinge of satisfaction at the thought, but it didn't come. I don't know why they came here, I said. I hate them. But I didn't really hate these sad, slow creatures, despite all my intentions. They were builders and fixers, or so we'd been told a harmless variation of a species we still knew almost nothing about. They were trapped in alone and had probably been born to be slaves. They weren't the ones that had killed my dad. They hadn't flown the ships that had dropped in their thousands from the sky. I think they're starving, said Mark. They've been stuck in that field for weeks. My gaze followed the busy figures as they moved over the rocky terrain. They don't look it. How would we know? I've brought them something to eat. So that was what was in the lumpy rucksack on his back. How do you know what aliens eat? He looked vaguely embarrassed. I don't. I just brought stuff. I guess they can take what they want. Stuff? What could his family possibly spare? He opened the bag and we both stared inside. Some vegetable peelings, probably stolen out of the compost. An old shirt that was so cut up and tattered it couldn't even be used as rags. Some bits of an old tire the plastic legs of a chair. You're going to give them that? He shrugged. Better than nothing. I didn't have an answer for that. All right, I said. I want to see them. I wasn't sure where the words had come from, but as I said them, I suddenly knew that I had to do it. I want to see them up close. I knew he wouldn't argue, 
because of what had happened to my dad, and I knew it was unfair of me to take advantage of it. But lately, I had stopped caring about fair, as though the weight of everything had forced me to shed things with consideration for others the first to go. Wordlessly, he handed me the sack. Part of me wanted to go up to where the grass stopped and the bare rock began, to let them see that it was me who was bringing them these things. Another part of me wanted to stay back within the razor-sharp safety of the grass. In the end, it was the vegetable peelings that made my decision for me. I had no way of throwing them any distance. So I walked to the edge, laying my squashing boards carefully before me to press the grass down and provide safe passage. I felt exposed and a little foolish, and I realized, when I was almost there, when the big, lumbering shapes had stopped their progress and swiveled their tiny heads towards me, that in the grass it was impossible to turn and run. The two giants remained still as I reached the open ground and, still standing on my board, emptied the contents of my sack onto the stone. My offering seemed pitifully small as it scattered. When I looked up, the aliens were heading straight for me. The need to run was so sudden that I almost stepped off my board into the waiting blades. But a lifetime of careful movement stopped my raised foot at the last moment, made me step slowly back along the board I was on, and on to the one that was lined up directly behind it. My gaze remained fixed on the hulking figures moving towards me. My throat tightened and my heartbeat pushed against my eardrums. I lifted the board I'd just vacated and the grass began to slowly rise, a curtain of safety before me. The aliens had covered two-thirds of the ground between us, moving faster than I'd ever seen them, their stumpy legs motoring along in coordinated swinging movements, rolling their bodies along, their tentacles and appendages clamped down to their sides, as though it would somehow make their ungainly bodies more aerodynamic. I stopped my retreat three board lengths out from the edge. Twice again what I thought their longest tentacle could reach, and feeling a sudden light-headed courage, turned to watch what they would do. It wasn't me they were after, it was the things on the ground. They slowed as they approached, little heads craning forward, arms waving excitedly over my offering, as though they were frightened to touch. I saw for the first time that they had four eyes, two in the center and two on either sides of their heads. I'd expected them to be like the pictures I'd seen of insect eyes, many-faceted and cold, but they were big and soft and brown, like horses' eyes. They blinked every now and then one at a time. The one on the left seized a piece of tire in one tentacle and inspected it carefully, first bringing it up to its eyes, then wiping it against its chest, where there was a moist-looking patch between the armored plates of its hide. Then, quite suddenly, a hole opened below the patch. It looked like a round, pink, fleshy mouth. In went the rubber, and the hole was gone. Cool. It was Mark's voice, rising from his hiding place amid the grass. I found that I was grinning. The other alien had wasted no time in imitating its fellow. Within a few seconds, all the rubber was gone. The shirt went into the same hole as the rubber, after being carefully divided between them. The vegetable scraps went into a different hole, further up, just below the head. When everything was gone and the questing tips of their tentacles had inspected every bit of ground, their heads turned towards me. There was a brief humming sound in the air, something that echoed inside my skull, rather than through my ears. Then they turned away and headed back to their collection of dismantled hut parts up the hill. Cool, said Mark again, from behind me. I watched their retreating forms. I hate you, I said. You had no right to come here. 
but the words felt hollow as they came out of my mouth, and I didn't even know why I'd said them. Was there something wrong with me? Some defect that prevented the self-righteous anger I knew I was entitled to, that my father was entitled to? I suddenly felt I had betrayed him by helping these things, by failing to hate them the way that I should. In the distance, the tinny rattle of our yard bell sounded, calling me home. I reached back and grabbed the squashing board behind me. The track we'd made getting here over the grass had already disappeared, blades springing back up neatly into place, as though they'd never had our weight crushing them down. I wanted to hate the grass too, but I couldn't manage that either. Maybe if I'd been born on another world, like my parents, and hadn't always looked out over a dazzling, velted landscape of green. Our town looked like a scar to me, the bare earth around the houses stark and naked, the various earth species that had struggled to grow in the depleted soil all sickly and wrong. All around, the grass stretched out, perfect and unstoppable. I was proud of it in an odd way. I didn't tell my mother that. Ever since my father had died, the defeat had pushed itself a little farther into the lines of her face. It sat in the distant, unfocused look in her eyes and every aspect of the way she moved. I wanted to lift it away from her, as though it was a clinging veil, to reveal the mother I remembered. But I didn't know how to begin, and my concern for her had started shifting into anger. The thought dragged at my movements as I made my way over the grass towards the road, leather gloves protecting my hands from the blades as I replaced one board with another before me. There had been times before the war when I'd actually wished my father would leave, when the strained silences over the dinner table or the sudden vicious arguments had made me wish for peace and end to the tension that sat like a living thing in the air between my parents. But the two of them had always worked it out in the end. There would be a huge fight, and then the next morning it would all be gone. For a while, at least. It was gone forever now, and the guilt I felt at ever having wished it away sat like a small, furtive animal in my mind, starting out when I least expected it. At the road, Mark headed off in the opposite direction, waving a hand in farewell, boards tucked under his arm. I wasn't the only one who had clearing to do before dinner. The small rectangle of our yard was empty when I got home, my mother probably inside preparing dinner. I grabbed the heavy cicadas from their hooks by the back door without going in. There would be enough indoor time this evening for me to sit through. I started with the track to the creek, like I did every day. The narrow path ran downhill from the end of our yard for about a hundred meters to the slow, twisting, rocky banks of the stream that cut across our claim. On every side was grass, blades reaching inward about waist-high to swipe at the skin of anyone who wandered by without their leather coveralls on. I started by cutting back the overhanging blades, needing both hands to close the cicaders on the fibrous stalks, tossing them back into the ocean of green as I did so methodically working each side down the slick, mossy banks of the creek. Then I turned around and did the runners, green tendrils inching across the clean soil of the track. They grew about ten centimeters a day here, this close to the water. I pulled them up, cut them off, and threw them back to join their fellows. My father once told me how amazing it had been to see this new world as they descended from space. How beautifully, dazzlingly green it had been. How the colonists had laughed and hugged one another with joy that their world seemed so rich and abundant. You never could tell, he said, what you were getting, no matter how many bribes you'd paid. 
There are always stories of colonists being sent to desert planets or frozen wastelands or worse. After all, why should the Earth authorities care? It wasn't as though you could go back and ask for a refund. As it turned out, our world was sort of a wasteland after all. And he'd been right. We couldn't go back. Once the track was cleared, I hauled water in buckets up to our straggly vegetable garden, which covered most of the cleared area of our yard. Something was still eating the cabbages. I examined the neat, semicircular defects along the edges of the leaves and searched for the hundredth time for caterpillars or other insects. There was nothing. I suspected it was a fuzzer, one of the matted puffball rodents that lived in the underlayer of the grass. The thing had obviously braved the exotic terrain of the open yard and developed a taste for something besides grass stems. But there was nothing to make a trap with, and no money for netting. I hated cabbage anyway. It made the whole house stink like garbage for days. Clearing the edge of the yard took longer. I was halfway around when something caught my eye out in the grass. It was red, a red that I'd never seen before. Pure and vibrant, it glowed in the afternoon sun like a beacon a little more than a meter out in a sea of blades. I stared at it for a long minute, trying to work out what it was. It had to be man-made, to be a color like that, though I couldn't remember seeing anything in town that had ever been that red. How did it get out here, on our claim? I reached out a gloved hand, shuffling up the wall of the grass. Blades pushed against my treated leather coveralls, but none came as high as my face. I stretched as far as I dared, leaning out, careful not to overbalance, acutely aware that the further I stretched, the closer my face came to the knife edges below me. My fingers brushed the red thing, and it swayed. It seemed to be attached to the grass around it. A second attempt and I'd grabbed whatever it was attached to and pulled. But the grass refused to break. Carefully, I stretched out my other hand, which held the cicadas. I'd need to cut the thing free of the grass. It was much harder reaching out with both hands. I found myself standing on tiptoes in an effort to get more reach, my balance hanging by a thread. Then the cicadas bit into the grass and the red thing came free. It did so with a sudden jerk, and suddenly I was unbalanced and falling. It happened in slow motion. I windmilled my arms, desperately trying to stay away from the wall of grass before me. A picture came into my mind of Amy Rice, who tripped and fallen face first into the grass. It had cut off her nose and sliced open her lips and one of her eyes. I wanted to scream, to let out the fear and horror that had blossomed in my chest, but in this sluggish, treacle world I had no control over my body. Then I fell. Hard and backward, landing bottom first with a thump on the cleared soil of the yard. For a few moments, the world swayed and shifted around me as I sucked air down into my lungs. Then it all settled, and I was able to look at the thing I held in my hand. It was a flower. Five lumescent, gently curving petals with a round yellow bulb at the center. It was halfway up a long stalk that must have come up from the grass. There were more flower buds at intervals along its length but none of them had opened. Taking off my left glove, I carefully stroked a fingertip along one of the delicate petals. It was soft and warm, and left a faint tingling sensation on my skin. Leaning close, I put my nose to it. There was no smell. I gazed at the wall of green before me. Now I was looking, I could see other stalks with buds. They looked almost exactly like normal blades. Only slight, symmetrical swellings gave them away. I'd never really thought that the grass might flower. It certainly hadn't in the 16 years since colonists had been here. 
I'd seen flowers before. There were beds of them, carefully tended around the council chambers. Seeds brought the vast distance from Earth. There were seeds in the archives, too, waiting for a time when ornamental vegetation was no longer a luxury only civic authorities could afford. Some people didn't think that time would come. Some thought we would never win, that the grass would consume us, swallow us whole, the way it had swallowed almost every other thing on this world. Unnatural, my father had called it. On land, he'd said, we'd discovered only 15 species of vegetation, four species of animal, 32 species of insect, and 12 invertebrates. The seas, as though in compensation, teemed with life. Certainly most of the meat we ate was fish, brought over land along narrow, laboriously paved roads. It cost a lot. We hadn't eaten any since Dad died. Should have chosen the coast, my father had muttered whenever we'd painstakingly extended our yard, slashing the grass at ground level, digging out the meter-deep root systems, shredding and composting it all. It wouldn't even burn. But the coast had problems of its own. Near landfall, something had come out of the sea one night. At least, that's what they'd thought. The next day, the whole town was empty, with not a clue to where everyone had gone. There wasn't any blood or signs of panic, There weren't any people either, but a few days later, some bits washed up on the beach. That town was deserted now, everything usable taken away to safer ground, leaving a pillaged skeleton, as though the things in the ocean had done more than just make a meal of the populace. I looked down at the flower in my hand, feeling oddly as though this hostile world that was my home had given me a gift, a peace offering of a sort. Behind me, the light in the house had come on. I hurried to finish the rest of the yard, then tucked the flower inside my coveralls before going inside. My mother was in the kitchen, doing something with the vegetables. The food tasted different since Dad had died, as though the oppressive air of the house seeped into everything that was created there. Wash your hands, Jennifer. My mother's voice followed me as I ducked into my room. Nina Sung just lost three fingers to that fungal infection that's going around. I pulled the flower from inside my coveralls and put it into the glass of water that stood beside my bed. Even in the dimness of my room, it seemed to glow. I stroked the petals, and again, felt the oddly pleasant tingling in my fingertips. My mother's voice came again from the kitchen. Dinner's on the table! I left the flower in the darkness of my room. I hated dinner. Of all the times of day, it was the worst. My mother and I sat across from one another at the table, under the single globe that we could only run at half-intensity since two-thirds of our solar array had gone offline. Neither of us spoke. The vegetable soup tasted bland and almost metallic, as though my mother had forgotten to put salt in it. Perhaps we'd run out of salt. I didn't dare ask. It took me until the bottom of my soup bowl to muscle up the nerve to say what I'd been wanting to say for days. Mark says we should apply for a council subsidy. The words came out in a rush, as though my normally unresponsive mother might jump in and cut me off. He says we're entitled to one on account of Dad being killed in the fighting, He says we should be getting it already, but maybe there's been a mistake in the records or something. My mother just sat there, her gray eyes focused a little off to the left of my face, as though I wasn't really there at all. It'd help, I said. Maybe we wouldn't have to sell any of our land. The silence stretched further for a few moments. Then my mother said, Have you been discussing our finances with your friends? There was an edge to her voice that told me I should have kept my mouth shut. No, not really. It's just that, how could I tell her that everyone knew we were in trouble? 
that I hadn't even needed to mention it. I don't want you seeing Mark Trenton anymore, said my mother, her gaze still on the space beside my head. He's not a good influence on you. Besides, there's more than enough work to be done around here. And with that, she got up and began to do the dishes, leaving her dinner half-eaten on the table. In a fit of anger, I grabbed it and ran with it to my room, where I drank it down straight from the bowl before she could come and look for it. I was sick of being hungry all the time. Sick of the pitying looks people gave me in town. Sick of my mother's misery. And I certainly wasn't going to do what she said. Pure rage washed through me, the emotion so strong it left me shaking. How dare she just give in? How dare she opt out and leave me with all of it? She'd even stopped going out and looking for work. Was that my job now? What were we going to do when our coveralls and gloves wore out and there was no money to buy more? Or if one of us got sick? I buried my face in the pillow on my bed and waited for my breathing to slow. My thoughts hung there, suddenly clear in my mind. This was my world, and it wasn't going to defeat me, and neither my mother nor anyone else was going to get in the way of that. When I looked at my window the next morning, the world had turned red. It was the red of the flower at my bedside, which now had every bud open. As far as I could see, the velvet green of the grass appeared as flashes in a sea of flowers. Every bud on every flower must have opened overnight, as though set on some internal timer. You were early, I said to the flower at my bedside, and ran out into our yard. My mother was already there, standing completely still with her back to me, looking out of the blanket of color. I went to join her, my bare feet silent in the dirt. When I was standing beside her, I saw the shiny tracks of tears on her cheek. That thinking, I reached out and took her hand. For a long time, she didn't even look at me. Then she said, Roses are red like that. I didn't reply. I'd never seen a rose. No one had ever been able to make one grow here. He used to give me roses, my mother said. Even though they were so expensive, he said I was worth it. We worked so hard to come here. We planned it together. It was what we wanted. We were going to do it together. How can things change so much? Her hand suddenly squeezed my own so tightly it hurt. I felt her start to shake. It's going to be okay. My voice sounded weak and uncertain in my ears. We'll be okay. No, the word was a moan. It's not okay. I can't, I just can't do this. My mother sank slowly to her knees, still holding my hand. Her breathing was coming in jerking sobs now with horrible inhalations between, as though she couldn't draw the air down into her lungs. I stood fixed, my hand in hers, my toes digging down into the dirt beneath me, immobile but desperate to run, to cram myself under my bed and put my hands over my ears. I hate this place. She gasped the words out between breath. I've always hated it. From the moment my feet touched it, I knew it was wrong. What are we going to do? I stood there, trapped, holding her hand as she cried, the red of our world around us. They really liked that wire, said Mark. I wonder if there's a cookpot at home that Mum wouldn't miss. The chair was just as good. Mark had managed to turn up with a coil of rusting wire 
and the other bits of a chair which had donated its leg earlier. I'd gotten the impression that he'd been the one who'd broken it, and this was the handy way of destroying evidence. The aliens had certainly made short work of it. They'd watched us expectantly as we'd approached this time, shuffling their massive frames forward, but not coming too close until we deposited our offerings, as though they didn't want to scare us away. Their eager advance once we'd begun to retreat was evidence of their enthusiasm. What do you think they're building? We'd been speculating for the last half an hour as to the nature of the structure which was appearing on the hill. It consisted of a fragile-looking, four-legged framework standing more than two meters high. It didn't look very functional, particularly as a shelter, and it had something hanging down the center of it by four poles. This part swayed every now and then against the gusts of the breeze. Maybe they're just bored, said Mark, waiting for their people to come and get them. My dad says they're going to have to do it soon. The Aramaci have set a date for them to be out of the system. The Aramaci were the race we'd negotiated with to protect our new planet all those years ago, when my parents had boarded their ship headed for the stars. Safe passage and military backup in exchange for a one-tenth share in our export tradings, no matter what they might be, for a thousand years. So when an alien race, bristling with attack craft, had arrived and advised us that the grass belonged to them, we triggered our distress beacon, and, to everyone's surprise, the warships had arrived. I guess the Aramacy thought that the planet had to contain something worthwhile for someone to attack it in the first place. Certainly, this world was rightfully ours, allotted to Earth, but out in the fringes, people didn't always pay a lot of attention to things like that. We didn't even know what the true name of the race that had attacked us was, or why they had done so. You going to the War's End celebrations tomorrow, said Mark. I bet we could get a hold of a whole lot of rubbish before the recyclers come and pick it up. No one would know. I'd completely forgotten about the planned festivities that would be occurring the next day. There was going to be a fair. With so many people eating, drinking, and enjoying themselves, we should be able to get our hands on all manner of disposables before the recyclers snap them up. I thought about that as I made my way slowly home. Hundreds of thousands of perfect red flowers swaying gently around me. The light had the heavy golden quality of late afternoon, and the air smelled ever so faintly sweet. My feet seemed extraordinarily light on the road, and I was suddenly filled with optimism and hope. I was doing something important back on the stony hill, something that would go on to resonate through my life. Good would come of it, I was sure. My feeling of optimism lasted until I reached home and remembered that my mother was waiting for me. The day of the war's end celebrations dawned bright, but not clear, and I woke up to a faint dusting of gold on my pillow. I gazed at it in consternation for a moment before looking up at the flower on my bedside table. The table itself was also dusted with powder, and all the small yellow bulbs at the center of my flower were gone. It had to be pollen. It made sense. We hadn't discovered any pollinating insects on this planet, so the plants must have found a way to spread the pollen themselves. I giggled, suddenly finding the idea of exploding flower centers disproportionately funny. I imagined millions of them, all going off together. What was the sound of a million flowers exploding? Sitting up, I looked out the window. The air was hazed in gold, so thick it might have been fog. I laughed out loud. When I came into the kitchen, my mother was cooking eggs. I stared at the two sizzling blobs of white and orange in amazement. Where did this come from? 
Surrey Burton, my mother's voice, was quietly surprised, as though she couldn't quite believe what she was saying. She came to the door and gave them to us. Said she had some extra and she thought we'd like them. Do you want to toast some bread? I had two slices of bread under the griller in a matter of seconds and started setting the table. The smell of eggs was making me dizzy in anticipation. Everything seemed amazing this morning, bright and glowing and clear. Even the haze gold of the sunlight streaming through the kitchen window was spectacular, pollen motes swirling lazily in the kitchen draughts. I gazed at them, entranced, and suddenly I knew that today was going to be a perfect day. The war's end celebrations were in plenty, our hub town, more than 20 kilometers away. A special council road train came and picked everyone up from the satellite settlements. Its eight open-sided carriages wending slowly over dirt roads, enormous armored tires standing almost as tall as me. It would do the circuit continuously until the sun had set on the day. The mood in the carriage was effusive. People talked and laughed over the top of one another. Not even the babies cried. I sat in the midst of the press of people and drank it in, my gaze on the gold-tinged red fields around us. It was though I'd been living in a dark, damp hole and suddenly had been thrown into warmth and light. In my hands, I held my rucksack tightly, my collecting sack inside. Plenty was packed with people. The town square had turned into a market, stalls decorated with anything brightly colored that the people could find. Many had made wreaths and chains out of the grass flowers, and loose red petals whirled in the breeze. Mark appeared at my side as we got off the train. Got any cash, he said, keeping his head low so my mother wouldn't hear. I shook my head. We'd even brought a packed lunch. Within the euphoria of the morning, I hadn't cared. Here, he said, pressing something into my palm. My mom gave me heaps. I must have gotten mad this morning. See you over by the games in half an hour. Then he was gone, following his parents into the throng, and I was left looking down at the five-credit piece in my hand. It was easy to convince my mother to let me explore on my own. There was free coffee, put on by the council, and she didn't particularly want me hanging around while she sat and gossiped, so off I went. It was just as easy to grab the odd bit of rubbish when no one was looking and jam it in my sack which soon bulged satisfyingly against my thigh. Half an hour later, Mark was waiting by a stall where you had to throw a rubber ball into barrels. Nobody was managing it very well. The balls kept bouncing out. But no one seemed to care, as they laughed and shelled out credits for more attempts. We both had a go at the rifle shooting. The solid butt of the gun was heavy against my shoulder, as I lined up garishly painted paper fuzzers in the notched sight on the end of the muzzle. I laughed at the light kick of the recoil, even as I missed every time. Mark was giggling, too, though we hit all of his, and we walked away with a big sack of fairy floss, pulling off chunks and shoving them into our mouths. Mum said this stuff used to be bright pink on earth, said Mark, holding up a pale golden tuff, and just a little bit bitter, like it wasn't really food at all. She said they didn't care, though, that they probably wouldn't have liked it any other way. Erg. The idea of eating fake food as a treat seemed ridiculous. Then, through the press of people, I saw something that made the world slow around me. My father stood in a gap in the crowd. I stopped, unable to think, only able to stare at him as he turned in the sunlight and began to walk away. The crowds closed back in and he was gone. For a moment I stood there, stunned and blinking. Then I began to push my way towards where he'd been. It seemed I should call out, as though the words would stop him leaving, 
but part of me knew that this must be an illusion, another small miracle thrown up by this supernatural day. I burst free of the crowds into a clearer space, my gaze frantically scanning faces. And there he was, standing less than twenty meters away. He looked the same as he always had. He even wore the same clothes, his best blue sweater and the khaki pants he'd brought from Earth and saved for special occasions. I advanced slowly, afraid that if I ran, it would break the spell and the illusion would dissolve around me. He was talking to a tall, brown-haired woman, who I thought I might have seen before sometime, in the crowded adult place. Step by step, I drew nearer, until I was standing less than two meters away, still mesmerized, watching all the little movements he made. The woman noticed me first. She stopped talking, and the smile faltered on her face. My father saw where she was looking and turned towards me. It took a moment for him to pick me out of the background crowd. I waited for him to smile, speak my name, do any of the hundred familiar things that would prove to me he was real. His eyes widened as he saw me, but there was a confused, frightened look in them, as though he wasn't looking at the daughter he knew, but something wrong that had taken her place. My own smile faded in response, and I took a few steps closer, as though proximity could somehow change the expression in his eyes. Dad? I said, the question coming into the word at the last moment. He took a step backwards, as though I was contagious. Jessica. The horror was in his voice, too. What are you doing here? There was anger and accusation in the words. I shook my head against them, feeling the sudden sting of tears in my eyes. Dad? My voice sounded small and uncertain in my ears. The woman beside my father reached out and took his arm. There was concern in her eyes, and she gave me a tentative smile. I realized that her worry was for me. Gary, she said, it's all right. We'll work through this. She's your daughter. My father shrugged off the hand, his face drawing together in anger. She said they wouldn't be here. I bet she planned it all along. He rounded from the woman onto me. Did your mother tell you to come looking for me? Was that the plan? To come and beg me for money? I gave you the claim, didn't I? Wasn't that enough? I was crying in earnest now, my chest shaking, the tears running down my nose and into my mouth. The woman grabbed my father's arm again. For God's sake, she's just a child. She released her hold and came over to me, stooping to my level and taking my shoulders in her big brown hands. It's okay, honey. Your dad's just had a bit of a shock. He needs a couple minutes to get over it. He feels bad about everything that's happened. He didn't mean those things he said. They said he was dead. My voice was a thick whisper through the crying. Mom got a letter. He never came home. We lit candles every night. My mind was turning over and over, trying to understand, trying to see a way in which it had all been a mistake, a way where no one had lied to me, where my father hadn't walked out and not wanted to come back. The woman had turned back towards my father. Is that what she was told? That you were dead? He was shaking his head. I didn't tell her anything. I have no idea what Mary told her. I just, it just seemed best that I stayed away for a while. You mean you just left, without ever talking to her? The woman was angry too now. How could you be so gutless? God, if I'd known that was the way you dealt with it, I would have thought twice before letting you move in. I couldn't stand it any longer. I pulled free of the woman's grasp and ran blindly into the crowd. My thoughts churned, tumbling over themselves out of sequence. Relief that my father was alive, falling beneath the knowledge that he had abandoned me. Anger at my mother mixed with the understanding that I was not the only one he had walked out on. My vision was still blurred by tears before I realized I had escaped the crowds 
and was standing beyond the market square. The transport stop was before me at the end of the street, and the road train waited to begin another loop. I looked down to where my fingers clutched tightly on the bag of odds and ends I'd so happily scavenged earlier. I couldn't turn around and go back into the crowd. What would I say to Mark or my mother, or worse still, my father? I couldn't even bear the thought of it. I had to be far away from here. I jumped on the transport train as it began its trundling trip towards home. By the time I reached the stone fields, it was mid-afternoon. It was awkward managing the squashing boards and my bulging sack at the same time, so my progress was slower than usual. That was good. It helped calm the horrible swirl in my mind. Worst of all, the magical euphoria that had infected everyone that day kept trying to push in. I resisted it because it was perverse and wrong, but it only increased the muddle. I began to feel nauseous. The two aliens waited patiently, just out of touching distance, while I emptied my loot onto the ground, though they were already waving their tentacles in anticipation. I think they knew I wasn't frightened of them anymore, because they were already inching forward as I began my retreat. Perhaps because of everything else going on in my brain, I didn't pay enough attention to the boards beneath my feet. You have to place them just right, so there aren't any uneven clumps or hollows beneath them, or they can tip when you stand on them, and suddenly you're in serious trouble. The flowers made it harder than usual to judge how the grass was arranged, and whether there were any dips in the ground. I didn't test the stability of the board properly before transferring my weight onto it. My foot came down, and the board tipped sharply to the side. My foot slid with it, and suddenly, I was falling. I had a split second of realization. I was dead. In my hurry to get here, I hadn't gone home and put on my leather coveralls. No one knew where I was. I would bleed to death, quickly or slowly. I had time to hope that the grass would hit a major artery and everything would be over in a minute or so. Then, the tangle of green was rushing towards my face. In fetal reflex, I closed my eyes. Then everything stopped. Something clamped around my chest so tightly I could barely breathe, and I had the sensation of being lifted. I opened my eyes as I was set, feet first, on the stony ground. The alien released the tentacle that had wrapped around my chest, and the appendage retracted back into its body with a leathery, slurping noise. We gazed at one another. The two of them were only a meter away. I could have reached out and touched their knobby, armored hides. Their great, dark gazes gazed at me. They looked expectant. Thanks, I said, unable to think of anything else. The look of anticipation didn't change. Then, the one on the right waved a tentacle at me, as though beckoning. They both turned, heads swiveling to look up at the hill. The structure they had built sat there, outlined against the sky, a golden haze of the afternoon air around it. The tentacle beckoned again, and then both aliens turned and lumbered up the hill. I stood there for a moment, gaze going to my boards, still lying in the grass. I could get back on them and go home. I could wait in the silent house for my mother. Questions and accusations going around and around in my head. Or I could stay. Part of me knew I should be cautious. If there was one rule about alien species, it was that you could never predict what they would do. Part of me also knew that my mind wasn't working normally. The euphoric golden haze in the air had turned off my caution and my fear. And these two beings in the field with me probably knew that. I stared at my boards for a moment longer then turned and headed up the hill. The aliens ahead of me were obviously excited, 
and for a moment I wondered if they were as affected by the pollen as I was. They kept swiveling their little heads around, making sure I was following them. As I drew near to the structure they had made, my footsteps slowed. I'd expected a glued-together mass of old hut beams and God knows what else. But this was more than that. Much more. It was all made of the same material, for starters, something smooth-lined and luminous. Its poles and struts held the glow of the light, beautiful in their clean simplicity. My gaze went over the angles and lines and came to rest on what hung in the center. It looked like a seat, but it wasn't the right size for either of my companions. I stared at it, my already overwhelmed brain trying to grasp the bizarre truth. It was a swing. These two creatures from another world had built a swing, and they wanted me to use it. They were looking at me, expectation back in their eyes. I took a step forward, and they waved their tentacles in excitement. I had to straddle the seat like a horse to sit on it. It yielded ever so slightly beneath my weight, as though the whole structure was flexible. Poles ran down to the sides and at the front and the back, sloping inwards to a central axle above. I tilted my head upwards, and even that slight shift in weight sent the thing moving in a fluid arc, as though on perfectly oiled hinges. I gasped in surprise, and without thinking shifted my weight forward and then back, feeling the seat and the attached poles shift with me, magnifying my movements. Around me the landscape swayed. In reflex I pushed myself higher. I'd been on swings before, but not like this. In the palm-laden air, with the sea of red and green stretched out, it felt as though I could fly. Every movement of the air took my breath away. Every pull of gravity as the swing reached its highest point hung weightless for a moment, then dropped. It was overwhelming. I felt as though my body couldn't hold the entire startling experience of it. Everything else fell away. All the turmoil of the day, all the problems in my life, inconsequential. How could they matter when it felt this amazing to be alive? I don't know how long I stayed on the swing. When I finally allowed the everyday world to intrude, my face was wet with tears, and my fingers ached from gripping. My legs shook as I stepped back onto the stony earth. Two pairs of large, dark eyes were still watching me, and suddenly I was glad that we couldn't talk, because my fumbling words would have spoiled it all. I'm sorry, I said at last. I'm sorry this happened to you. One of them shuffled forward, eyes blinking in turn, and it reached a tentacle out to me, something wrapped in its tip. I held out my hand in automatic response. A weight dropped into my palm. I stared down at the flashing green. It was a stone, intricately faceted and colored the blazing green of the grass. Deep within, motes of red swirled and shifted. Somehow, I knew they had made it, and now they had given it to me, for some unfathomable reason that I probably would never know. I'd never seen anything so beautiful, and never felt as undeserving as I did in that moment, as I said my clumsy goodbyes and walked away. My mother came home late last night. I heard her footfalls come to my door and stopped. I hunched beneath the bedclothes, pretending to be asleep while she stood there for an endless time. Eventually, she went away. Perhaps she didn't know what to say either. The next morning, I woke to an unnaturally bright room. I stared at the ceiling for a moment, sudden dread churning in my stomach, then raced to the windows. 
Snow lay in a suffocating blanket over the ground. I pulled my coveralls over my nightdress in a matter of moments and ran from the house. Snow slid into my shoes and the icy air stung my skin. I didn't care. I slogged down the roads towards the stone field, exertion burning the back of my throat, my breath clouding in the air before me. The world was silent and still, the sound of my breathing the only evidence of life. Around me, the grass was deep in snow, not a single flash of red in sight. It was worse when I needed to leave the road. The snow was deep over the grass, and the boards skittered and slid. I stayed on my hands and knees, hoping that if I slipped, the snow would shield me. Only a light drop in the landscape defined the edges of the stone field, as the grass gave way to bare earth. The field was empty. I stood, gasping for breath, gaze going over the unblemished blanket of white. There were no footprints, no signs of ship landing. The swing still stood, its cross pieces and seat mantled in snow. I stared at it for a long time before I noticed the two large bumps in the snow at its base. I walked slowly forward, my feet punching down through the crust of snow. Sun glittered over the perfect expanse of white, and part of me felt that I was desecrating something sacred, that it should all be left as it was, silent and untouched in the morning sun. But I had to know. Up close, the mounds were more obvious. They were neatly side by side at the foot of the swing, as though the two of them had settled down together and waited patiently as the snow formed their shroud. I wanted to believe that they were just hibernating, that they had shut themselves down as protection and would wake when their ship came for them. But the truce was over. No one would come for them now. They would stay here, in this field, on this foreign world, beneath the funeral monument they had built to bring a human child joy. I cried for a time, and left them there. The stone field didn't hold the only death that day. The grass, vulnerable as it reproduced, collapsed beneath the weight of the snow and turned to a brown mush when the thaw came. It never got a chance to form seed, at least where we were. After the snows melted, I found I disliked the new brown, naked landscape around me, every hollow and rock exposed. But, for the first time, our claim was truly ours. In other places, the grass remained. The council analyzed the pollen we had all been affected by, and it started to become clear why a race might plant a world with such a thing, and then travel light years to retrieve it. I sold the stone they had given me. I cried as I did it, even as I knew that it was the right thing, and that they would have approved. We bought chickens and rabbits for meat, and eggs, seaweed to enrich our soil, and seed for green manure. Our claim bloomed green for a few short weeks, until it was all plowed back in again, and planted anew. The chickens roamed through the tilled soil, energetic blobs of life. We chose fruit trees and planted an orchard. We sowed three paddocks with fodder weed and clover, in anticipation of the cows we were going to buy. The vegetable garden thrived and expanded, and suddenly we had produce to sell. Somewhere, during all of this, my mother began to smile again. It was after that that I went and saw my father. What he did still sits between us, despite the spoken apologies and forgiveness. I have no idea how to take the past and use it to strengthen our future, so the guilt and the resentment remain. But nothing is forever. I went back to the stone field once the snow had melted. I felt I owed it to them that I should make some attempt to bury anything that remained. All that was left was a few small, scattered pieces of metal, as though everything else had melted away with the snow. Even the swing was gone. 
I stood for a time, looking out over the brown, muddy landscape around me. It was so ugly and full of promise. I turned and headed for home. There you go. Don't forget, copyright, as always, is Michelle's. Michelle, thank you so much for letting Starship Silver have that story. Thank you. Honestly, thank you. Amazing. And Eba, lovely narration. Honestly, really nice. And that is the show this week. Yes, I would have been loved. Honestly, I'd love to have stayed. I wish I could hear the kind of raw outtakes. Honestly, every five minutes I'm barking like a dog. (laughs) Better cut that. So, like I say, that's the show. Next week, I'll try and get some, you know, more info on Sofa Notes. I know, you know, hopefully years will kind of be into that and get get what I'm kind of coming from with that. It's looking excellent. And like I say, I'm getting stories, up, you know, left, right and centre. Just off um, people who have been kind of, you know, extra content. That's the whole name of the game and just different things and, and prizes and everything like that. So... I will talk about it, but honestly, we've thrown us ragged at it. Yeah, that's right. Give us our way, man. Let the lad have a little chance to mourn. I get no sympathy in this house. None whatsoever. The wife's a nurse. My mum's a nurse. I was a nurse. <coughs> Sister-in-law's a nurse. Do you know what I mean? It's just, you don't get nurses. You don't pay enough sympathy at home. You give it all away at work. That's why. Just what a, someone gives a cuddle. <laughs> Right, until next week, just like you say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.